This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the history of Russia. I'm Damon, as usual, and this is episode 65, The Year of Living Dangerously. Thanks for listening in. So, last time out, in the intriguingly titled Twilight of the Miloslavskis, we covered the years 1738, 1739, and most of 1740. And we saw, initially, that perhaps all was not going so well, for the Empress Anna Ivanovna, her lover and right-hand man Ernst Biron, and her niece Anna Leopoldovna. But we found out that it was all a false alarm, because by the end of the episode, the so-called enemies of the state, the Dolgorukis, had been dealt with, Volinsky's brief time in the limelight had ended with his execution, Elizabeth Petrovna, Peter the Great's daughter, was staying under the radar, and Russia now had not one, but two Miloslavsky Romanov heirs, Anna Leopoldovna and her infant son, Ivan Antonovich. So my concerns were misplaced. There was nothing to worry about, and Russia was in safe hands for generations to come. This week, in a longer episode than normal, and in fact, even though I say so myself, it's a humdinger, We'll be covering the period between October 1740 and December 1741, which is 15 months and not a year. But I think you'll agree that the 15 months of living dangerously doesn't quite have the same ring to it. And whilst we're on the subject, The Year of Living Dangerously is a 1978 novel 
by Christopher Cock or Cook, who was an Australian author. The book is based upon an attempted coup by the Indonesian Communist Party that took place in 1965, and the title comes from a speech made by President Sukarno of Indonesia a year earlier. There was also a pretty good film version made, starring Mel Gibson and Sigourney Weaver, and both the book and the film are, in my opinion, well worth either a read or a watch. Before we start today, I'd just like to give a big Boyarduma welcome to Chris Whitaker, who has recently signed up. Welcome aboard, Chris, and I hope that you enjoy the ride. So, that's the intro done and dusted. There's a lot to get through, so let's crack on and do some history of Russia. October 1740, and the Empress Anna Ivanovna, now 46, is mulling over what to do in terms of the succession. Over the past few years, everyone had assumed that her niece, the 21-year-old Anna Leopoldovna, would step into her aunt's shoes. But things weren't as simple as that, for a couple of reasons. To begin with, Anna Senior had never actually proclaimed Anna Junior as her successor. It had just been implied or assumed that she would become the next empress, mainly because on the Milosavsky side of the Romanov family, there wasn't really anybody else. Well, now that had all changed. A year earlier, young Anna had married Anton Ulrich of Brunswick, and in August 1740, she'd given birth to a healthy son, Ivan, and so now the Empress had a decision to make. The smart money was still on Anna Leopoldovna. After all, she was the incumbent, and had been in pole position for a while, but a number of things counted against her. Her scandalous and complicated love life had alienated the Russian court, and although her husband had been in the country for several years, he was foreign, and this was something that had precluded others from the succession on previous occasions. And now, of course, there was a male heir on the scene, and even if he was only two months old, there was someone close to the Empress who'd thrown their weight behind young Ivan's claim, Ernst Johann von Biron. Biron, if you remember, had started to worry about what would happen to him if anything happened to the Empress. He'd managed to get his hands on the Duchy of Courland. But with Ivan now on the scene, he had started to imagine a different scenario, one with Ivan as Tsar and himself as regent. And the more he thought about it, the more he liked the idea. The next step was to do something that he'd become quite adept at over the years, convince the Empress to support his scheme. The problem was that when he mentioned it to Anna, she did what she often did, and said that she would think on the matter. After all, there was plenty of time, and the Empress wanted to make sure that she got this decision right. Anna had dinner with Biron and his long-suffering wife on the evening of the 16th of October. Throughout the evening, she ate little, complained of tiredness, and when she stood up to leave, she fainted. But the next day, she appeared to be back to her normal self. But then, on the 26th, she collapsed again, and worryingly, this time she was in, cre in incredible pain 
and unable to pass urine. Biron, realising that things were getting serious, and thinking ahead, went on a charm offensive, even reaching out to Elizabeth Petrovna, which to us perhaps seems counterintuitive, but was, in the long run, a sound move. On the 27th, Anna, now in extreme pain, summoned Osterman and asked him what she should do. The wily old courtier advised that the baby Ivan should be named as her successor, but that on no account should Biron be named as regent. And then just like that, a day later, on the 28th of October, 1740, Anna Ivanovna, the Empress of Russia, was dead, probably from a severe kidney infection. When the news was announced, Biron wept. Anna Leopoldovna collapsed in a heap, and her husband, Anton of Brunswick, stood rooted to the spot, white-faced with shock, each of them no doubt thinking what was going to happen now. And soon afterwards a letter was produced by one of the Empress's servants and handed to Osterman, who opened it and in a shaky voice revealed that by decree of the Empress, Ivan was to be the new Tsar and acting as regent would be... Ernst Biron. Realising that St Petersburg was about to experience interesting times, Osterman scuttled away and took to his sickbed. The Brunswicks quietly left the room to be close to their infant son, leaving Biron to contemplate his next steps as the effective ruler of Russia. So while he's away doing that, we'll look at what was behind the, Empress's, the Empress Anna's decisions. Why had she chosen Ivan as the next emperor and Biron as the regent? Surely Ivan as Tsar and Anna Leopoldovna as regent would have made more sense. Well, unfortunately, we don't know the definitive answer. But part of it was down to historical precedent, i.e. male instead of female. But a larger part of the decision was the need to protect Biron going forward. Apart from Anna, no one really liked Biron, and most simply detested him, particularly after the Volinsky incident. And so I'm pretty much convinced that she made her lover and right-hand man regent of Russia in the hope that this would keep him nice and safe for as long as possible. This also explains the need for the decision to have been made after her death via the letter, which presented everyone with a fait accompli. If she'd made the decision beforehand, then others could have argued against it and would have probably got her to have changed her mind. Biron's first steps involved both carrot and stick. For his regency to survive and potentially succeed, he would need as much support as possible while showing at the same time that he could flex his muscles. He upped the yearly cash allowances for both Anna Leopoldovna and Elizabeth Petrovna, but publicly rebuked Anton of Brunswick for not showing him 100% loyalty and also threatened to send him and his wife back to Germany. With Osterman still feigning illness, Biron's next move was to patch things up with his least favourite person, Burkhard von Munich. Biron dangled the position of army commander-in-chief in front of Munich, but in return he wanted the field marshal to keep a close eye on the Brunswicks and find out what they were up to, and this, unfortunately, would prove to be 
a really bad move. Munich agreed, but on one of his visits to the Winter Palace in early November, he told Anna Leopoldovna and Anton what Biron was up to, and suggested that they turn the tables on the regent. The couple agreed, and within a matter of days, Munich had a plan and the support to back it up. Everything was arranged for the night of November the 19th. Munich and a detachment of soldiers showed up at the Summer Palace, persuaded Biron's own guards to join them, and then stormed into Biron's bedroom, grabbed the regent, who apparently begged for his life on his knees, manhandled him into a waiting carriage, and took him off to the Schlisselberg fortress. He'd been in charge of Russia for three weeks. Over at the Winter Palace, Anna Leopoldovna, surrounded by guards, declared herself as regent for her young son. And the next day, Munich, Ostermann, who had mysteriously recovered, Anton of Brunswick, Cherkasky and Ushakov were back as the inner circle. This time, though, things would be different, because Anna Leopoldovna would prove to be a complete novice when it came to affairs of state. Her recently departed aunt had at least attended cabinet meetings. Anna rarely bothered. And there were several factors that contributed to this. She was out of her depth and wasn't really interested. Osterman and the others knew what was going on, so might as well leave them to it. Plus, she was pregnant again and had young Ivan to half keep an eye on. But the main reason for Anna's indifference was that Julia von Mengden and Count Moritz Linar were back in St. Petersburg. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the Ménage de Trois was back and in full swing. Having said all of that, at the beginning of her regency, Anna did show an interest in a couple of items. What was going to be done with Biron, and what can we do about Munich? In the interests of balance and fairness, Osterman either suggested or told Anna that a special commission was in the process of being set up to investigate Biron. But there was nothing fair or balanced about the makeup of the commission. It was stacked with anti-Bironites, and so everyone pretty much knew which way things were going to go. Anyway, during the early months of 1741, the commission did its work, and in April came to the conclusion that Biron was a traitor and was guilty of lots of other stuff as well, and therefore should be executed. Osterman presented the verdict to Anna and Anton, and they signed off on the decision, in baby Ivan's name, of course. But then someone, and we don't know who, but it could only have either been the regent or Osterman, had a change of heart and suggested that the better, more just punishment was life imprisonment preferably somewhere cold and inhospitable. And so on the day of his execution, and just as he was being led out to the scaffold, Biron was informed that A, he was to live, and B, that he and his family were being sent into exile somewhere in western Siberia, oh, and C, all of his property and possessions, including his stash of diamonds, were to be confiscated. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. 
but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The situation with regard to Munich was slightly different, as in terms of the current regime, he hadn't actually done anything wrong. In fact, it was quite the reverse. He'd been instrumental in getting rid of Biron so that Anna could become regent. So what was the problem? Well, under interrogation, Biron claimed that Munich knew all about the plan to make him regent. Plus, young Anna didn't trust the field marshal. He knew too much. And what he'd done for the Brunswicks, he could easily do for others. And so she asked Osterman to come up with something that would, you know, just make him go away. Osterman went away to think about the best approach. He knew what was required. Bring an important man down in a deft, subtle manner. No need for violence or a trial or any fuss. He also knew that the field marshal tended to get emotional when criticised, and so he started to oppose Munich's point of view in cabinet meetings and slowly ratcheted up the pressure, until one day Munich exploded and offered his resignation, which, much to his surprise, Osterman then accepted. The field marshal was escorted back home and then told in no uncertain terms to stay there and await further instructions. But they didn't arrive, and so for the foreseeable future, Munich would be kept under house arrest. And so with those items sorted, Anna was free to concentrate on domestic matters. Now, as mentioned, she was pregnant again. Her father was, surprisingly, her husband Anton, and at some point in 1741, she gave birth to a daughter named Yekaterina. But all was not well in the Brunswick household. Anton had moved out of the Winter Palace because his wife had got her ex-lady-in-waiting, Julia von Mengden, and the ex-Saxon ambassador to Russia, Moritz Linar, to move back in. The three lovers spent their days and evenings either alone, and I'll leave that to your imagination, or entertaining various members of the Russian elite. And it was during these soirees that Anna would engage in court gossip and try to work out who her friends were and who, perhaps, was less supportive of the Regency regime. The trouble is, or was, that she wasn't very good at working out who was in which camp, mainly because, again, she was out of her depth, being on the one hand naturally suspicious, but on the other completely naive. Now, in normal times, these behaviours and the resultant lack of leadership and sense of drift that pervaded throughout the Russian court could perhaps have been tolerated or worked around. But these weren't normal times, because whilst St Petersburg was dancing the night away, the other major European powers were gearing themselves up for another round of backstabbing and military campaigning. The war of the Austrian succession would soon begin, and in fact, Prussia and Austria had already kicked things off. 
Now we'll be going into this war in a bit more detail over the next couple of episodes, but for the here and now, all we need to know is that this particular series of conflicts would essentially be another round of Habsburg versus Bourbon, and that one of France's pre-war aims was to break the long-standing alliance between Austria and Russia. Now the French knew that most of Anna's cabinet were pro-Austrian. However, with Biron and Munich out of the picture, and with things in Petersburg in a state of drift and torpor, they decided to chance their arms, first of all using underhand diplomacy, and then, to up the ante, they would get one of their allies to invade Russian territory. So what was underhand about French diplomatic efforts? Well, it wasn't so much what they did, but who they chose to deliver their message to, because it wasn't Anna or Anton or Osterman or anyone else in the Regency regime. It was Elizabeth Petrovna. The 32-year-old Russian Venus had lived patiently and carefully through the reigns of Peter the Great, Catherine I, Peter II, and now Anna Ivanovna. The last ten years had been the most difficult. Empress Anna, who was reputedly jealous of Elizabeth's good looks and easy charm, saw her half-niece as a threat to her own regime, and hence she'd had Ushakov spies watch every move. However, since the Regency had been in place, attitudes towards Elizabeth had changed. She was now invited to court on a regular basis and was treated as a member of the royal family, albeit one who couldn't be completely trusted. And the Brunswicks were right to be cautious because throughout 1741, Elizabeth was gaining in popularity and attracting support from a couple of worrying directions. She'd always enjoyed a close behind-the-scenes affinity with the Preobrazhensky guards, but now that relationship was becoming more visible. Plus, her friends and advisers now included a number of prominent men who were starting to sense that the Regency's grasp on things were slipping and that momentum was shifting towards Elizabeth. So who were these friends and advisers? Well, key amongst them was Jean-Armand de Lescoq. He'd been the court doctor during Peter the Great's time, but since then he'd been Elizabeth's chief supporter, confidant and advisor. Then there were the Razumovsky brothers, Alexei, who was currently Elizabeth's lover, and Mikhail. Two others who had nailed their colours to Elizabeth's mast were Mikhail Voronsov and Alexei Betuzhev Ryumin, who was the son of Anna Ivanovna's former lover, Pyotr Betuzhev. And then last of all, you had a recent addition to the fold, the French ambassador, the Marquis de la Chetardie. He'd arranged for Lestoc to introduce him to Elizabeth, and then during the spring and early summer of 1741, he'd spent time first cultivating a friendship, and then with Lestoc's support, he'd built up to his main message, which was, one, Elizabeth should really be in charge of Russia, and two, France was Russia's true friend, and when she finally seized power, she should ditch the Austrians. Now, obviously, he was a lot more subtle than that. And whilst Elizabeth listened politely and nodded occasionally and smiled in all the right places, she was far too careful and shrewd to cross the line or commit to anything. Frustrated, in early June, Chetardy reported the situation to Paris and asked for further instructions. 
The response which he received a couple of weeks later went something along the lines of, sit tight, the Swedes have said yes. And what the Swedes had said yes to was a plan to invade Russia that had been rustled up between the French and a political, political faction named Hatana, or the Hats, who had come to power in Sweden in 1738. OK, let, let me try and explain. I mentioned a couple of episodes ago at the end of the last war between Russia and Turkey that the Ottomans were trying to put together an alliance with Sweden, Poland and Prussia, which, if true and if realised, would pose a threat to Russia's western borderlines. Well, it didn't happen. However, the French picked up the baton and they started working on an alliance between themselves, Prussia and Sweden. France's aim was to become the preeminent power in Europe, and to do this they needed to defeat or neuter the Austrians. They decided that the best way to do that was to isolate the Austrians, and to do that they needed Russia, Austria's long-term ally, on side. Hence the alliance with Sweden. Again, we'll go into more detail on this in a future episode, and I'll explain the Prussia bit as well. But all you really need to know right now is that in 1741, France was trying to get Russia to drop Austria through diplomatic means. But because Elizabeth wouldn't play ball, they went to their plan B, Sweden. The Hats faction in Sweden were pro-French, and were keen to get back to the Finnish territory they'd lost to Russia in the Great Northern War. And so they said yes, and in July 1741, Sweden declared war on Russia. The trouble was that Hat HQ in Stockholm had gotten out of whack with the Swedish army in Western Finland and the Swedish navy in the Baltic. As soon as St Petersburg heard about the invasion news, Osterman dispatched Peter Lacey and a Russian army north into Russian-held Finland. But when Lacey arrived, there was no sign of the Swedes, and so he struck west, and throughout late July and August, he just kept going. In early September, the Swedish army finally turned up, but was smashed by the Russians at the Battle of Vilmanstrand. Back in St Petersburg, Regency informers had picked up on the fact that Elizabeth had been spending a lot of time with the French ambassador, and Osterman, who'd been smelling rats for some time, strongly suggested that Anna have a quiet word. Anna did, but Elizabeth tearfully denied everything. However, realising that she was under suspicion, she sought advice from Lestoc, who in turn sought advice from Chetardy, and that advice was predictably, unless you strike now, you're doomed. Which happened to be the exact same advice that Osterman then gave to Anna. In early December, an arrest warrant was issued for Lestoc, and Munich, who'd been persona non grata for months, was ordered to come to the regent's aid. Realising now that the die was cast, Elizabeth went all in. On the night of December the 6th, 1741, and accompanied by Lestoc and Vorontsov, she personally led a contingent of Preobrazhensky guardsmen through the snow towards the Winter Palace. Once they'd forced entry, they split into separate groups. The first headed to the regent's apartments and arrested Anna Leopoldovna and her son, her husband, her husband Anton and Julia von Mengden. Another group located and arrested Osterman, but Munich was nowhere to be found, although he was later apprehended at the Polish border. Both were imprisoned, tried, sentenced to death 
reprieved and then exiled to different locations in Siberia. Cherkasky and Ushakov had seen which way the wind was blowing in the lead-up to the coup and had let it be known that they would, you know, be available if anyone needed a hand with anything. And so, Elizabeth Petrovna finally had got to the top of the pile and was now the Empress of Russia. She'd served her apprenticeship, observed the highs and lows of five different regimes and had survived. The French were disappointed that the Swedish army had suffered defeat, but hey, you win some, you lose some. And all's well that ends well, because the overall aim of getting a pro-French anti-Austrian regime in place in St. Petersburg had been achieved. Or well, they thought it had. It has, hasn't it? Don't tell me we've been to all that trouble for nothing. And there, ladies and gentlemen, is where we'll draw a line for today. Next time we'll be putting those questions, and others like what happened to Anna Ivanovna, Anton and young Ivan VI, on the back burner. And instead we'll be taking a look back at Anna Ivanovna's time in charge and getting stuck in to what had been going on in the rest of Europe in the lead-up to the War of the Austrian Succession. So, until then, dear listeners, chins up, look after yourselves, and most importantly, stay safe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.